Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hi, I'm Wendy Wilkerson from Idaloo, Texas, and I'm a data analyst. I love listening to Compelled because hearing how God has worked in and through the lives of people is such an incredible example of what Paul wanted for the Colossians. Our hearts being encouraged, our being knit together in love, and our knowing Christ. Enjoy today's episode. I'm Paul Hastings, and you're listening to Season 4 of Compelled, a seasonal podcast using gripping, immersive storytelling to celebrate the powerful ways God is transforming the lives of Christians around the world. Last week, our guest was Kathleen Lansing. After Kathleen's two-year-old son fell suddenly ill and was on death's door, she cried out to God asking for healing. But his condition only worsened, and Kathleen feared the worst. Only a miracle from God could save her son. You can hear that story with its unbelievable conclusion by tuning into last week's episode with Kathleen Lansing. Today, we are officially halfway done with season four, and our episode is going to be a little bit different than our usual show. That's because we're going to air one of our exclusive behind-the-scenes episodes, which are normally reserved only for our monthly Patreon members. You see, normally when I sit down with a guest, we'll have a conversation that's close to around two hours long. And that's probably longer than most of you guys want to listen to, which is why we added our regular episodes down to 45 minutes and then add sound effects and narration and music and all the other things that make a compelled episode. But that also means that there is a ton of great material that we end up trimming out. Stories, insights, teaching, and more that we normally have to make the hard decision to leave out due to time constraints. But our behind the scenes episodes include all of that material. We still do some slight editing to remove interruptions or bathroom breaks, but for the most part, it's pretty close to the original interview. No narration, music, or sound effects. It's just a conversation. So normally only our monthly Patreon members get to hear these special behind the scenes episodes. But this week, we wanna share a special one with you. Our guest is Hannah Overton. She was a regular mom of five kids from Corpus Christi, Texas, who was falsely accused of murder and sentenced to life in prison. We originally published her story during season two as episode 16 of Compelled. But now you can listen to our entire interview right now. And just a reminder, if you have been blessed by listening to Compelled, would you prayerfully consider partnering with us financially and help us continue bringing these stories to life? When you join as a monthly Patreon supporter, you'll get access to all of our behind-the-scenes episodes, as well as access to our regular episodes one week early every single week. And of course, we accept one-time contributions as well. To get started, visit compelledpodcast.com and click the button at the top that says support our work or click the link in the show notes in your podcast app. Here's a quick word from our sponsors, and then we'll jump into our behind-the-scenes story with Hannah Overton. Hey. 
As a teenager, I had so many friends whose lives were transformed by attending a Worldview Academy leadership camp. For many of them, it was the highlight of their summer because it was such a spiritually engaging experience. And today, Worldview Academy's mission continues. If you have a student between 13 to 18 and you care about equipping them with biblical truth so that they're prepared to stand firm and engage with the culture, then Worldview Academy is what you're looking for. Worldview Academy's week-long summer intensives cover topics in apologetics, servant leadership, and evangelism, all while building deep friendships with like-minded students. Your student will engage with 25 hours of interactive teaching, addressing questions like, how do I know that the Bible is true? Does God really exist? Who defines what is right or wrong? And what difference does that make in my life? Since 1996, over 42,000 students have called this one of the best weeks of their life. And with 18 summer intensives all across the country, there's certain to be one near you. Learn more and get 10% off your student's camp registration as a Compelled listener by using the promo code COMPELLED at worldview.org. Register for camp today at worldview.org while spots are still available. And remember to get 10% off using the promo code COMPELLED. Okay, you've been waiting very patiently now. So with no further ado, here's our raw interview with Hannah Overton. Okay, well, I'm here in the studio today with Hannah Overton. And uh, Hannah, you have a very unique story uh, about God's redemptive love through your life. Um, and in many ways, it's kind of the story about you being imprisoned unjustly and then being released, exonerated, but thriving through that entire experience. Um, would you mind just briefly... Um, I guess uh, we're going to get through your whole story here in pieces. Um, can you just tell us, like, how did you come to salvation? What, what did that look like? Well, I was raised in a Christian family. I got saved at about three years old, from what my mom says. You know, I was just um, raised knowing Jesus as my Savior. I don't really remember a time when I didn't. And then as a young child, around eight, and we moved on to a mission space, and my mom was like a secretary for a missions organization, so I was uh, surrounded by missionaries. I lived on the state side, but I lived um, like where everybody would come to have their furloughs and things like that and and just was you know I kind of grew up sheltered in this little God bubble, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, as a missionary kid. And so I did a lot of short-term missions growing up as a teenager and um, and just was constantly surrounded by ministry. Yeah, yeah. And then eventually you met a man named Larry. Tell us about that experience. Well, we actually met when we were young. We were about two years old. My dad was pastoring a church, and his parents were going to the church, and um, we our parents became friends, and so we became friends when I was about five. He stole a little bird from his mom and proposed to me. Wow. And, <laughs> and so our parents tried really hard to get us together the rest of our lives because they thought it was really neat. And we really didn't want to have anything to do with each other until we went off to missionary school together to a discipleship training school with YWAM and um, we ended up getting engaged during that school and got married soon after and felt like God had called us to Corpus Christi to work with the youth in Corpus at that time. Yeah. So that's where we went. Great, great. And then you moved to Corpus Christi around what year was that when that happened? 97. 97. And then you started having kids and uh, tell us about your kids. 
My oldest is 19, and he's in in Waco. He went through a discipleship school there in Waco with Antioch, and then um, is still there going to Antioch and going to college. My daughter, Isabel, his name is Isaac, if I didn't say that. Um, my daughter, Isabel, 17. She also just moved to Waco to go through Antioch's discipleship school. And um, next is Alicia. She's 16. She's at home with us, homeschooling and um, getting ready to go to college and all that. Um, next is Sebastian. He's 14. And he's saving money right now to go to Peru. His best friend is a missionary in Peru, and that's where he wants to be, is with him. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, then uh, next is my daughter, Emma. She's 12. And um, she just turned 12 a couple of days ago. And then we've been blessed with a brand new baby. She's here in the studio with us, so you may hear her off and on. But she is seven months old. Her, her name is Gabriella. And uh, Gabriella Elena. Gabriella means God answered our prayer, or God gives me strength. And Elena means God answered our prayers. Yeah. And when you hear the rest of my story, you'll know why we named her that. <laughs> That's great. That's great. So I know a few years after you guys have been living in Corpus Christi, uh, y'all became interested in foster care. Can you tell us about that? So um, we were doing youth ministry at our church, and our um, we had four kids. I was pregnant with my fifth, and our daughters were in children's church with a little boy named Andrew, and he was praying for a forever family, and we fell in love with them. My daughters came home and said, why can't we be his forever family? And back before we had kids, we had considered at some point adopting, and that was something that we really wanted to do, but we didn't know when or how that would play out. And so anyway, when Andrew came into our lives, we decided we wanted to go ahead and pursue adoption with him and got to open the doors for that. And he soon after that, he moved into our home and became part of our forever family. And tell us about Andrew. Tell us about his personality. Andrew was the sweetest little boy. He had um, big blue eyes and chubby cheeks, and he was starving for love. So he, any chance you got to, you know, he would be, just be the most cuddly one in all the family. Um, at first, he didn't know what to do. Like we'd, I'd say, be gone and come home. All the kids would come running up to give me a hug, and he'd stand back, like you know shyly looking at you like what yeah, do I do can yeah. I get a hug and when we tell him to come hug us he just got really excited and um it, it within 24 hours of coming to stay at our house he was already calling us mommy and daddy he was so proud of that yeah um uh, he'd been living with us about two weeks when my daughter um Alicia was getting into something and I called her by her middle name. I said, Alicia Summer Overton, you know, come here. And he's like, what's my name? And he had never known his full name. Oh, wow. So even though his name hadn't officially been changed, I told him his name was, you know, Andrew Josiah Overton. And from that point on, he would go up to everybody, strangers, and introduce himself. My name is Andrew Josiah Overton. Oh, he was so proud of it. Oh, man. And he was, he was an adorable oh, little man. boy. And how old was he when you uh, started? It was Foster. He was four. He was three when we first um, got to know him, but he was four when he moved in. Got it. Got it. That, that's a beautiful story there. And, and tell us a little bit more about Andrew, his, his background, where he had come from a very tough background. Can he had. His, his mom was a drug addict. His dad worked for a carnival and wasn't around. Um, 
and he had been in an abusive situation. He had been taken out of, you know, an abusive home, born addicted to multiple drugs. And, um, you know, so he had had a pretty tough life. And then he had lived in the foster system, you know, until we got him. So even in that situation, it's not not very easy growing up in the system. Yeah, for sure. Um, Let's just move forward a little bit here. After he'd been with you guys for a few months, um, there was a very... um, traumatic thing that happened October 2nd, 2006. Can you just kind of tell us from your eyes, tell us about that day. Well, Andrew started getting sick and it seemed like he had, um, just like a flu of some sort, like a stomach flu. I, um, I was pregnant and he was throwing up and I wasn't doing very well with him throwing up. So I called my husband to come home and help and we put him in bed and, um, you know, just thought that he had a, a stomach flu and then he started breathing funny and so at that point we said we needed to take him in and we asked the CPS agents to meet us there at the doctor's office because we hadn't the adoption wasn't finalized so we couldn't just take him to the hospital we had sure. to have permission to do that and so we we left and went you know what we thought we were going to the urgent care and we ended up at the hospital and 30 hours later he passed away from a very rare medical condition called hypernatremia. Um, it causes some weird symptoms in your body. It's high levels of sodium. And um, so in the process of that, then the doctors not really knowing what was going on, it, there was a lot of miscommunication, misconceptions, and um, very quickly some different um, Conclusions were come to, you know, people came to conclusions that were not true. And my husband and I were accused of abusing Andrew and then causing his death. And I was charged and then later convicted of capital murder in his death. Yeah. When Andrew passed away at the hospital, like, did it even cross your mind that, like, you would be blamed? No, um, we were, um, when he, he passed away the next day, but when we were at the hospital, we were all praying for him and, you know, just desperately, you know, praying for our baby to get better. And, um, my, my pastor's wife was at a pastor's wife's conference in California and she had all these, um, pastor's wife stop and pray for him. And somebody sent me this scripture verse that says, um, uh, I can't think of it. Psalm 37, 5 and 6. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. And when she gave me the scripture, I was like, what does this have to do with my baby? My baby's dying. You know, and I, I, I didn't I didn't understand that scripture didn't have anything to do in my perspective with what was going on. Yeah. And then an hour later, somebody else came to me with that same scripture and said, God says that I need to give you this scripture. And so I read it again and I was like, this has nothing to do with anything. I want like a scripture about my baby being healed, you know? Yeah. And, um, and then not 10 minutes after the second time that scripture was given to me, the police came and took me and began interrogating me. And I realized that I was going to be accused. That was the of moment. Crazy things. The police yeah. just came, walked up to you and said, they said they wanted to take me to the police station to talk about what what was going on so that they could better understand what was happening with Andrew. And, you know, from then on, things just rolled downhill. Oh, man. And, um, oh, man. Yeah. Wow. And so, so, so the trial happened. 
and it was a, a jury trial. It was. And at that trial, do you believe that you were in any way targeted at all? Yes. I mean, um, there was there was proof of my innocence. Um, that when we went to the urgent care center, Andrew vomited at the very first place that we went. It had, that vomit had been saved, and I had been asking for it for days and days and days, months. I'd been asking, where is that? Because I knew it would prove my story was true. You know, they were saying that I had force-fed him 23 tablespoons of Zatarain seasoning, and I knew that if they tested that, that vomit, that it would show that there was none of that in his system. And um, when I, uh, later, years later, after I had been convicted, we were able to find that they had this vomit, they had tested it, and it showed a low amount of sodium, the amount of sodium that he would have had with what I had said he had eaten for lunch. And that not only did they know this, but they hid this evidence from us, um, saying that I had made that up, that he had never thrown up in the urgent care, that there was no vomit whatsoever. Yeah, and yeah. So they had hid this in the evidence room in a um, in a brown paper sack that said Overton Home, so that we wouldn't even think to look in that sack. Wow. For this vomit. Wow. And and do you have any idea as to to why? I'm sure this is something that you know you and your husband have like thought over the years, like why 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 you guys like. Well, the second chair prosecutor. Um, says that uh, there's a documentary made about my case and she says this in the documentary but that the prosecutor was um, trying to make her name for uh, with this case so you know I, I don't I I choose to believe that in the beginning that she wasn't you know just making this you know just coming at me but that she already once she had gotten the results from this and realized that she was wrong about her theory that she the ball was already rolling and she was like but this is you know, this has got a lot of media and this is a big case and I can make my name off of that. So she continued to go with that. Oh, man. That's, you know, my way of, you know, believing that that happened. I don't know. I haven't ever spoken with her, but I know that she knew and that she continued to pursue, you know, a conviction. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, along with that, there was a... Um, the top nephrologist in the world uh, that you know deals with salt poisoning cases and different things like that and he was there at my trial wanting to testify had he testified the jury would have understood that even if he had been in the room that the symptoms of what's going on look like a flu yeah. until the very end. And there's nothing that he could have done. You know, he, he looked me in the eye and told me, you know, I have seven kids. I'm the top nephrologist in the world. If I was there, I would have done nothing different than what you did. Yeah. You know, but he was not able to testify due to delays in the trial and then a deposition that went, that went crazy. And then, you know, th so there were a lot of different things that made that not happen. And he should have testified in the trial. Yeah. That was one of the reasons that my uh, appeal was granted, was yeah. that he should have been able to testify and explain to the jury that there's nothing that could have been done. And that he, you know, because a lot of what, what I was convicted of in the end was taking too long to go to the hospital, not that like that I should have done something differently. And um, the, the jury members were polled after the conviction and asked if they actually believed that I had done anything intentionally, and nobody believed that. But what they did believe was that maybe I should have gotten there quicker and yeah. moved faster. 
but they didn't have the whole testimony that showed that, you know, any normal mother would not have run to the hospital when their child threw up. Sure. <laughs> you know, and, um, you know, that was the only symptom that he had until we did go to the hospital. Sure, sure. What was there any point during the during the trial when, you know, it crossed your mind like, hey, I don't think we're going to win. I think we're going to lose. Like, did that cross your mind at all during the trial? You know, I, of course, I was scared, but I, uh, because probably I had been raised on a missionary base, I'd seen God step in and save the day yeah. so many times. Yeah. You know, I had watched as, you know, money was provided the day before every, you know, something was needed. And I just expected that God would come in and save the day on my time schedule. <laughs> you know, and he did. I'm here able to have this interview with you, but he didn't do it on my time schedule. So I, you know, the morning that I left before my, um, Verdict. I didn't even, you know, I kissed my kids goodbye, but I didn't like, I didn't prepare them for that, for that I might not come home. I didn't, you know, I didn't expect that I wasn't going to come home. I in, was in your heart, you thought I was totally shocked that I was convicted. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I'm sure you thought that truth would prevail. Right. I mean, that's right. I, be I believed in the justice system. <laughs> I believed in, um, you know, which in the end, like I said, I am here. So the justice system, you know, the appeals process is there for a reason and thank God that it is because I'm here, but you know, I believed that truth would prevail and that I would not be convicted. Yeah. Yeah. So then when, when the jury came back and said, Hey, we find you guilty. What, what literally happened at that point? Like what were the thoughts going through your mind? I was in complete shock and I don't remember like the next five days. Like I was totally in shock. Um, my attorneys came to the um, police station with me and they, you know, they tell me stories of like in the county jail, the sheriff actually let them stay with me for hours and I was crying. I can't do this. I can't do this. You know, things like that. But I don't remember it. I was really? totally in shock. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So my oldest was eight. He was seven when Andrew passed away. He was eight when I was convicted. And my youngest, Emma, was seven months old, which is the age of my baby now. Yeah. So um, I was still nursing her. I was actually, during the trial, the judge had like given permission for us to take nursing breaks so that I could stop to feed her. Like that, Part of the reason like I had no clue that I would be convicted because everybody, everything was just being, um, you know, taken care of to the way, extent that I could take care of my kids as much as possible. Yeah. And, um, so I had, you know, a eight year old, a six year old, a five year old, a three year old and a seven month old Yeah. that I was left that le I left at home with my husband. Wow. Wow. And he was facing charges also. Um, after I was convicted, he was offered a plea deal. Well, the doctor that took care of Andrew before he was in our home, um, when he was in the foster system, was also in the emergency room the day that Andrew was taken to the emergency room. And he was told by the prosecution that he would be able to testify. Now, what he wanted to testify about was that Andrew was not a perfectly healthy child, that Andrew had health issues that could have caused this. And um, he was not able to testify and he was hidden in a back room. And, um, so 
in, in the end, when I was convicted, he was very upset that he hadn't been able to testify. And he stayed there at the courthouse until he could talk to the judge and talk to the media and say, I was not, you know, this lady wasn't given a fair trial. In the midst of all that, the, um, uh, the DA's office offered my husband a plea deal. And he didn't take it at first because they were, at first they were trying to get him to plead guilty and he's he said I couldn't play, plead guilty because he hadn't done anything and um, after a few months uh, we found out that my case was on hold my appeal was on hold until he actually took a deal of some sort because we were charged together and so they, they worked out something to where he could plead no contest and be able to stay home with his with the kids and take care of them and so he got a adjudicated probation for a negligence charge which he didn't do either but he was able to plead no contest so that he, we, my appeal could continue and he could stay home with the kids well well I guess you don't, you weren't there or you don't remember this, but do you know how, how did your children respond? Like, how did your husband break the news? How did Larry tell the kids, mom's not coming back? Well, um, on the documentary, you see they, they asked him those questions and he, um, he said that he stared out of a window for a few hours and the kids were with my pastor and then he was like, I need to go home and tell them and he just told them that some people believe some lies about me and that I had to go to jail until we could prove the truth. So that's what they were told and that's the, that is the truth, <laughs> you know. So we, um, a, a few months later, I mean a few weeks later, there was a point when I was, I was very, very depressed. You know, as we spoke about a little bit earlier, you know, I had thought God was going to come in and save the day, and he didn't do that. In my, you know, my perspective, God had failed. Yeah. And I, I was trying to figure out how God could love me and allow this to happen to me. Yeah. And, and I was, you know, I was in solitary confinement because of all the media for the first five and a half months. And I was, so I was alone. I was only allowed out of my cell to shower in the middle of the night. And I, I was very, very depressed. I wasn't eating. I wasn't sleeping. Um, Every time I would try to go to sleep, I would have nightmares that I couldn't get to my kids and they were hurting. And um, so the nightmares were even worse than it was when I was awake. So I was scared to go to sleep because in my dreams, they would be like drowning in a car and I couldn't get to them or whatever, you know, different things like that. Yeah. And um, anyway, I, I had come to a point where I just felt like I couldn't do it anymore. And I was planning to call my husband to tell him like, cause I get, I got one, I got a phone call every so often in the middle of the night when I could call him and talk to him for a few minutes. And I was going to call him to tell him that I couldn't do it anymore. And my plan was, I wasn't telling him I was going to kill myself, but I was telling him I was going to die of a broken heart because I really thought I was going to die. And I wanted him to prepare for that because I was, I just, I knew I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep and I was getting sicker. And I was, so I called him or I went to try to call him. And um, little did I know that earlier that day, um, God is so cool because my son was trying to go to sleep and he was crying. My oldest, he's eight and he was crying. He was telling his daddy, I can't do this. I can't do this. And how can I live without my mama? And, um, Larry left him 
And he said, he said, can you just read this right now? Read your Bible for a minute and, and I'll be right back. And he left because he didn't know what to say. He was completely overwhelmed by that question. And he went to the garage and cried and you know, threw a couple things and <laughs> told God it's not fair. What do I say to my son? And the whole time, you know, as, as he's trying to get control of his emotions so he can go back in there and answer that question, when he went back in, Isaac was not crying anymore. He was, he was smiling and he, he, he said, Daddy, Daddy, look. And he opened up his Bible that Larry had told him to read for a minute. He says, it says right here, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And in that childhood faith, you know, he, he read that and he believed that. And he, he said, we can do this. Yeah. And he said, you need to tell mama when she calls, tell her that the Bible says we can do all things. And so when I called ready to tell Larry that I was going to, you know, die of a broken heart, he, before I got that out, he was able to tell me that story about how, you know, God says <laughs> in his word, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Wow. And, you know, that helped carry us through. Wow. That's a really powerful story. I'm starting to tear up here, y'all. Like, <laughs> ooh, that's <laughs> Are you okay? So I'll be honest. Um, last night before... Uh, you know, I, I knew I was going to come and interview, you know, so I'm like, you know, researching and doing it. And we'd been doing this like for the week and everything. And last night I had this nightmare um, that uh, I was being sent to prison unjustly and that I couldn't tell my family. And it was like, it was so weird, you know. And then you, you too had a, a nightmare also related to this as well. Um, I mean, I think what you're describing is the, the nightmare scenario of every parent. Every parent, every spouse, right? This this would be the truly a nightmare. You mentioned you were able to make a call to your husband every once in a while. Describe for us how frequently were you allowed to even communicate with your kids, your husband at all? How, how did that work? So while I was in county for that first five and a half months, I had, um, in the middle of the night, they would let me out of my cell and I could make a choice between taking a shower and making a phone call. But it was sometime between 12 and 6 a.m. So it was, you know, I, I never knew when that was going to be, whenever the officer decided to let me out. And that was, and I had to make that choice. So if I wanted to make a phone call every night, I could, but then I couldn't take a shower. You know, so that's kind of where, where that was at when I was in the county jail. Now, when I was transferred to the maximum security prison where I would spend the next seven years, um, they didn't have a phone system there yet when I first got there. And um, they... So you could sign up to get a phone call, but uh, if you did, you would get five minutes on the phone every 90 days. Well, when I have five kids, it's worse than not making a phone call because you don't have time to even say hi and you're getting off and then the kids are crying. So it just, I never did that. Can, can you repeat that? You said five minutes every 90, every 90 days. Days. That's the way it was set up at first. Now, about three years into my sentence, they got phone system, a phone system in the state of Texas. And so now offenders are allowed to call as long as you have money. Um, you can sign up for phone calls and you can call as much as, you know, whenever the day room is open. So um, on regular uh, on regular basis after that happened, I would call every Tuesday night and talk to all the kids and Larry and everything. And then I um, also called my pastor's wife once or twice a week also. Um, 
it was very expensive. So that's unless there was something, you know, going on that way, like I would call for birthdays and things like that. But I would I would just call once a week unless it was unless there was something going on. Now, just recently, a law was changed and the prices have gone down. And now I have uh, people that call me uh, about once a week and it's, you know, it's much more manageable. Yeah. You know, but while I was in there, it was pretty expensive when they did get it. And prior to that, they didn't have it at all. So, so during the first, you know, three years before they had the phone system, what was your communication with your family? About once a month, my husband would bring the kids up for a two hour visit through bulletproof glass. Um, he came every weekend, uh, the church helped pay for gas and watch the kids and all kinds of stuff so that he could come and he came every weekend and we, we had contact visits. So we would sit at the at opposite sides of a table, but we could hold hands. Um, but because my case involved a child, I couldn't have that with the children. So I had to see them through bulletproof glass and I would, he brought them up once a month. It was a six hour drive both ways. So with five kids in the car once a month was all that he could handle. <laughs> wow. Wow. So while you were in prison, you know, you mentioned this evening that you had where you were just going to give up and that, that was while you were in Stone County, I mm-hmm. think. So when you were transferred to maximum security prison, what, what was the moment when it really crossed your mind? Like I'm in prison and I'm going to be here the rest of my life. Like, was there a moment like that? Well, I never thought I would be there the rest of my life. You know, that scripture that I talked about earlier, I felt like God gave me that promise and he gave it to me before I even knew that I would be, you know, accused of anything. And then throughout the years prior to my trial, after my trial and letters, people that had no clue of that story that I had just told you kept sending me that scripture. And so like God just kept reiterating that promise to me. And I did believe that God would prove my innocence. I had no clue how long that would be, if that would be two years, 20 years, but I did believe that he would eventually prove my innocence. Um, there was definitely a time when I realized I was in a maximum security prison Um, when I first walked in the door um, I was met by somebody who's now a good friend of mine and a believer a sister in Christ now but she was not then she was a pretty scary woman and she was screaming out fresh meat and she ended up being in the bed next to me and proceeded to scare me half to death for the next couple of weeks and you know my very first night I watched someone get into a fight and was sent to the hospital you know blood everywhere and you know so I was definitely greeted with a this is real life in a maximum security prison. And, but God is so good because he surrounded me by a group of women that had been in the prison for a long time, most of them close to 20 years. And they, um, had, this meant they had settled down, but it also meant that they knew the ropes and they, um, surrounded me and protected me and like took me in kind of to like their family. (laughs) Um, And, you know, one of the ladies was like, she's never going to make it if we don't take care of her and convinced the other ladies to help take care of me. And, you know, they got into fights for me. They made sure I ate and slept and different things like that. But God had his hand in that, not just for me to protect me, but for those women, because each one of those women now has a relationship with Christ. None of them were saved when I 
first got there, but God had a plan and every one of them is now saved. And it was neat. Like one of the last ones that, um, that got saved the whole time I was in there, she kept, she would do Bible studies with me and she, but she would always tell me I cannot give, um, control over to God. That's all I have is control. And she was like this four foot nine, 120 you know, pound lady, but she was known for fighting and people were scared of her because she, you know, she had killed somebody and she, you know, was known for her fighting. And so what she had in that prison to protect herself, she had gone into prison as a teenager, a little bitty teenager and used that reputation to protect herself. And so that, that control is what she had. Well, when I was, uh, when my case was overturned, uh, I, we were in the middle of the day room and I told her that my case was overturned and I was going home and she started crying. And then she cussed me out for making her cry in front of her people because she had never cried in that prison in 20 years. And, um, about a month after I came home, I got a letter from her saying, I did it. I surrendered. I gave my life to the Lord. And she says, I cry all the time now, but I don't mind being a punk for Jesus. (laughs) And, um, you know, I go visit her regularly and she cries like every time I go see her, but you know, it's really neat to see how God has continued that, you know, to change those lives. Yeah. What, what was the moment in prison, or if you can tell us, tell us about the moment in prison when you, um, I guess it, it crossed your mind or got pressed on your heart to minister to other women that were in prison. Tell us about that moment. Well, that was a process. So when I, when I was in the county jail, I was throwing a fit one day. I was... Um, you know, just telling God how unfair it was, you know, how, you know, how can you say you love me? And I'm in this prison and I need, my babies need me. My husband needs me. I need to be home. I, you know, and, and I, in the midst of this fit, I wore myself out crying. And, and the last thing that I said to God was, I can't even see the flowers and, and the, the birds. And I fell asleep. Well, God loved me so much that even in the midst of that fit where I'm telling him he doesn't love me, he, he heard that. And I, um, a friend of mine woke up in the middle of the night with this intense desire to get me flowers. And she tells her husband, I've got to go get her flowers. And he's like, you can't, she's in the county jail. You can't get her flowers. She's like, no, I have to, I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but I have to. And after a bit of an argument, she finally, she got up and went to the grocery store and bought flowers and went to the county jail and was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with these God, but I feel like you told me to buy flowers. And she put them in the no parking sign. And little did she know I was on the sixth floor. But when I looked out my window, that's what I could see that my little bit of the real world that I could see was that no parking sign. And I looked down the next morning at those flowers, you know, it's like, you know, now I look back and, you know, it makes me want to cry that God bought me flowers at the time. Yeah. I was still a bit of a brat in the mood I was in feeling abandoned by God. And I was like, that's not funny, God. <laughs> I still can't see the birds and I'm still in this stupid cell, you know, but he continued to love me. And uh, about a week later I was transferred 
to the maximum security prison. And when I got there in front of the dorm where I would be living for the next few years was a, a, a rock. And on that rock, there was a hummingbird painted on that rock. Mm. And I saw the hummingbird. And again, it's really neat because God, you see how God n loves me and he knows. But I looked at him, you know, I saw the hummingbird and I said, that's not funny. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is not even a real bird. And I am now in prison. And God said very gently to me, he said, but you're like that hummingbird. And I was so you know, distraught at the time that I don't didn't know what to do with that. And what does that mean? You're like a hummingbird. But I felt like you know, it was almost an audible voice. It wasn't an audible voice, but almost an audible voice saying you're like that hummingbird. And so over the next few months, as I began to heal and I began to um you know, to get used to life in prison and what the day to day was going to be like, I started looking at what is a hummingbird like? What, what, what could that mean? And a hummingbird is a very, very small, fragile creature that can just be crushed in your, the palm of your hand. But in God's hands, the hummingbird has this huge purpose. You know, we always talk about the bees, the birds and the bees or whatever, you know, that you, but you don't hear them specifically talk about hummingbirds. Well, hummingbirds do so much for pollination that we wouldn't have enough oxygen to live if there weren't hummingbirds on the earth. And um, as I was reading that, I felt like God was saying to me that in his hands, I had a big purpose and he had a purpose for what he was doing. And I needed to trust him. I, I might not understand his plan, but I needed to trust his heart. And one of the things that he brought to my mind was that as a, as a mom of young kids, I took all my kids to go get immunizations. And, you know, our kids, they, you know, we hold them down and we let this mean doctor stick them with a needle. Yeah. And, you know, and they don't understand and we could spend hours explaining measles, mumps, and rubella to our kids, and they're never going to understand. But they still trust us, and they still want us to hold them. And as soon as they get their shots, they're wanting to nurse. They're wanting to, you know, to be loved on. They're not mad at us. They don't, you know, they, they have that unconditional trust for us, even when we do that. And I felt like, like God was reminding me that... I may not understand his plan and he, he could spend forever trying to explain it to me, but I may not be able to get it right now. Yeah. And, um, just like that baby can't understand measles, mumps, and rubella that I may not be able to understand, but the plan was for my good and for his glory. Yeah. And, um, so I continued to walk forth in, you know, the day to day and just trying to live there and see what God w had planned. And um, there was this lady and it's kind of neat because now she's one of our discipleship leaders in there. But at the time she was uh, the head of the Wiccan circle and she was in prison, in prison, the Wiccan circle, the Wiccan circle. And she was very, very scary, very you know dangerous. And um, she I was put in a job where she was supposed to train me. And she was very angry with me because I kept crying. And she's like, you can't cry in prison. You know, except she didn't say it that nicely. But <laughs> um, so she kept, you know, she kept yelling at me for, you know, being a crybaby. And finally, one day she said to me, she, she said, you need to get over this and you need to realize that this is your home. And I was like, this will never be my home. And she said, no, no, this is your home. She said, she said, first of all, where do you get your mail? I was like, here. And she said, where do you go to sleep at night? Here. And she said, well, if you lived in an apartment for three months, 
you've been here for three months. If you lived in an apartment for three months and you got your mail there and you slept there, would you have called that, that apartment your home? Yeah, probably. And she said, now you say that you believe in God, right? I said, yeah. She's like, so if your God is so powerful, then he's got some purpose for you being here or he wouldn't have put you here. So either you believe in him or you don't. Is this your home or not? And I was mad at her. I was like, how could you say that to me? This is not my home. And so I, you know, I, I went back to the, um, to my dorm after work. And I was, you know, telling God all about how this wasn't fair. And, uh, and I opened up my Bible and in Acts, there's a place in Acts and I can't remember the exact address right now, but there's a place in Acts that says that God decides exactly when and where you are to live. And and I opened it up to that scripture and I was like, oh, wow. (laughs) Okay, God, (laughs) you know, and and it was like, God was telling me, you know, I, I, am in control and I did decide exactly when and where you were to live. Yeah. And you have to give in and realize that this is, this is my plan for you right now. And there's a purpose. And so at that point I repented for being so upset. And I was like, I don't know that I can ever call this home God, but I, I, I understand that you have me here and that there's a reason for you having me here. So, um, I began to like get to know some of the people more and a couple of my friends um, were just really, really hurting. And um, I realized that I had a hope that they didn't. And I began to tell them about that hope that I had. And as I began to tell them about that hope, I, I started, I asked my pastor's wife to send in a Bible study. And um, there's a Bible study called Healed and Set Free that I had been teaching at my church at home before all this happened that was just about giving God a lot of your hurts. And it was a study that God had used to prepare me for the situation I was in. Now, when I look back on it, I see that. But I, you know, I, I asked her to send that study in, began doing it with a couple of ladies, and then more people asked to join and just kept growing. When it started out with two ladies, by the time I left was about 100 ladies doing the studies. Wow. So different people from, you know, my church would send in the studies and the different groups of people would get together and do them. And um, it just kept growing and growing until, you know, at first I was leading all the studies and then I, it got to be too many that I couldn't do that. And we could, inside the prison, you can only get together in groups of four. If anything more than that can be considered inciting a riot. And so we couldn't, you know, I, I would do four, uh, four here, do a Bible study with four people here and then four people there. And then I got to where I didn't have enough time to do all of that. And so other people were doing the studies and it just continued growing. And after I came home, it's continued. Um, we have over 700 ladies doing the study now wow. and we're sending them in like every like three or four a year our goal is to get four a year in but usually it's about three <laughs> yeah yeah no that's 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 a such a beautiful story um thanks for just being like super candid with us i really appreciate just your honesty and your candor i i imagine this is probably a really uncomfortable topic like you know people are always asking about it probably and it's just like you know it's like kind of hard to revisit some of these memories at the same time. And I don't know, does that ever happen to you? Yeah, it is hard to revisit the memories, but it's also healing. Yeah. I've known, I've found that, you know, the more that I talk about it, the more that God reminds me of, you know, his presence in every step Yeah. and how he carried us through and is continuing to heal us yeah. and to work good out of this. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, good. 
describe if you can what, what was like for for those that are listening. I mean, because most of the folks here never been to prison, right? I've I've been to a prison, but it was not a maximum security prison. It was just like a very you know kind of normal prison. Describe for us that are describe for our listeners what's a maximum security prison like. Like, what was your experience walking into it? Okay, so um, the unit that I was on has dorms of 102 women in each dorm. So there's, um, you know, the dorm that I was in, there were 102 women. There were four lines of beds. So there's, you know, 25, you know, rows of 25 beds, 102 altogether. And then there's, you know, seven toilets and seven showers and everybody shares all that. And, uh, you know, an officer there all the time watching to make sure that everything is okay or to at times you know yell and scream and tear up everything or you know you never know what the officer's gonna do um there's uh you're only allowed to have a a two by two box of belongings so everything you own has to fit in this two by two box that means if you get pictures sent in from the kids they have to fit in that box if you want conditioner they have to fit, it has to fit in that box um so you provide your own toiletries you you do um we the state of texas provides five bars of lice soap one roll of toilet paper and some tooth powder which is like uh, baking soda in a cone cup and a toothbrush in a black comb and that's if you want anything more if you want deodorant if you want shampoo things like that you have to have money to purchase them from through their commissary so um if you don't have money then you don't have those things and um I, I luckily was, you know, one of the blessed ones that did have money to have those things. And um, so every couple of weeks, you have the opportunity to go to the commissary and you can go and buy those things. But you have to stock up for a couple of weeks on whatever you have, you know, whatever you need from the store. And it has to fit in that box or yeah. you're, you know, or you'll get a disciplinary case. Is, is theft a thing that happens in prison or is that? Yes. Yes. Theft happens a lot. Um on a regular basis. Um, what's an interesting thing for me, it's been my experience, and I've spoken to quite a few other people, other exonerees uh, especially, but other people that have been in the system. And um, what, you, what you don't realize is that theft usually happens with the, some of the smaller cases, you know, the cases that people would think where it'd be, you know, they say it's like a nonviolent drug offense, you know, not a big deal. Those are the people that you're more worried about actually stealing stuff from you or, or fighting or, you know, the people that have a bigger charge, you know, I, I could sleep better with a murderer next to me because a murderer isn't going to wake up one day and they, like they didn't just decide to kill somebody that day and they're just going to kill people every day. That's usually their circumstances that led to that and it was a one-time offense and it'll never happen again whereas somebody like with a drug addiction that's an addiction and they continue to um, act out on those in those behaviors and so uh, when we would have a drug person a person with a drug addiction next to us often we would have to deal with theft and things like that wow wow um, being in prison was, was violence a common occurrence also in the maximum security prison? Yes, it was. Um, I've heard it's a whole lot worse in the men's prisons, of course, because, you know, men often tend to be more violent than women, but it was a daily occurrence. You did deal with uh, violence. Um, 
there you got to realize too that there's you've got 102 women stuck in this little bitty room with um in the summer there's no air conditioning it's like 115 degrees in that dorm um they are you know they're away from their loved ones they're in a, they're out of their comfort zone they're 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 they get very frustrated with each other and so yeah. that's why there's it tends to end up there tends you know to be violence there and what percentage of the women would you say uh were there for life or had a life sentence on the unit that I was on, I would say maybe maybe thirty percent. Thirty percent had a life sentence, and the other women had a what would be the minimum sentence normally? A, a year. A year, really? Wow, wow. And then also um, explain, describe to us when you first walked into prison. What were the the sights and the sounds that you saw? What did it look like? What did it smell like? So there's metal and concrete everywhere. There's nothing, you know, I, I still to this day, like I'll go into a store and I touch everything soft, you know, cause there's nothing, there was nothing soft. Everything's metal and concrete. Um, and then there, um, it smelled horrible because they don't have shampoo, don't have deodorant unless they have money. And then you've got 115 degree weather, weather in the summer. Yeah. So it smelled really bad in there. Um, the sounds I told you that I was uh, greeted with someone screaming fresh meat, <laughs> you know, so that was a pretty scary sound in the beginning. Um, yeah, it was it was pretty crazy. Yeah, yeah, wow. If you're a recent college graduate or getting ready to graduate but don't have a job already lined up, then what would you think about moving overseas for nine months and living in a foreign country? receiving spiritual discipleship, and gaining professional skills. If that sounds too good to be true, it's not. It's actually the Global Ambassador Program from ELIC, which has connected Christians to opportunities around the world for the last 40 years, specifically through English education. You'll live with a group of other like-minded Christians your age, either in Tunisia or Thailand, and learn how to engage and serve people from an entirely different culture. Some of those ways might include teaching at a local school, hosting an after-school program, serving refugees, or by volunteering with a local ministry. And you'll get the chance to visit a couple other countries nearby, as well as make lifelong friendships and memories. And if you've never done anything like this before, then don't worry. The experienced team members at ELIC will walk with you every step of the way. If anything I just mentioned sounds intriguing to you, then sign up for an exploratory call. There's no cost, it's just a conversation. Get started at elic.org. Again, that's elic.org. If you're the parent of a high schooler or a recent high school graduate, then I'm talking to you. Have you ever been concerned about your students' career prospects or their financial future after high school? Or have you looked for ways to help them bolster their faith in the Lord as they pursue the next chapter in their life? Whether it's through continued education in college, jumping straight into a career, or working in the trades, Unbound trains students just like yours to thrive wherever God calls them. Unbound teaches young adults how to engage with the real world by equipping them to own their purpose, serve others, and live resiliently for the glory of God. They accomplish this through an intentional mixture of live events, practical skills training, and project-based education. And with programs available for students still in high school or post-high school, Unbound is ready to help your student prepare for what comes next. 
I personally know the team at Unbound, and they are excellent at what they do. And they enjoy listening to Compelled every week, which is probably why they've been one of our longest-running podcast sponsors. Learn more at beunbound.us slash compelled. Again, that's beunbound.us slash compelled. Did you meet other believers in this unit of 102 ladies or were you the only one? No, I didn't. I didn't meet other believers and quite a few people since then have come to know the Lord, but there were, there were definitely other believers there. There is even a faith-based dorm. I know you did a, a, a podcast with Linda Strom yeah. and there's a faith-based dorm at Murray, the unit I was at. Um, I wasn't eligible to get into that dorm because of my charge. So, but I know that's not what God had for me anyway, because those women there are being discipled and he had me there on a mission field, you know, but, um, there is a faith-based dorm where people that get saved can sign up to possibly go into that dorm and be discipled there. Yeah. Yeah. What was one of the most surprising things to you about being in prison? Hmm. Wow. There's lots of surprising things. Yeah. <laughs> I think in the end, probably the most surprising thing is that some of these women are like family to me now. Yeah. You know, you, when you think of prison, you think it's scary. You think of, you know, like you think bad people go to prison, not all, not only bad people go to prison, first of all, and we are all bad people. The yes. Bible says that, yes. you know, everyone falls short of the glory of God. you know, there's some, there's always something that makes us fall short. And, um, you know, God is bigger than someone's mistakes. And I learned that there were just so many people there that were just amazing women of God. You know, and that were amazing friends that are now like family to me. Um, and, and that was really that was really surprising. Um, but it's really neat. Also. Yeah, I think that's such a powerful point. You just brought up that all of us, regardless of, you know, if we're in prison or not, all of us fall short of the glory of God. Right. And from an earthly perspective, like, yeah, some people are in prison or not. But from a from a eternal perspective, every single one of us is destined yeah. To an eternal, you know, damnation in hell. Yeah. And that, you know, it, there's not something about us that makes us somehow better than other people. Right. Right. I think that's just such a powerful point. Yeah. And I could, I mean, as, as I go through a lot of times when I share, I, I tell stories of, you know, some of my friends' stories of how they got there. And people are in tears a lot of times hearing these stories because, you know, they, this person, like, let me just share one. Yeah. My, my friend Lucy, she has a, you know, a... It's 50 year sentence. And she um, she was six years old when she started getting sent across the border, selling uh, bringing drugs across the border. Her dad would send her by gunpoint across the border. And um, she was his mule, basically. And at about nine, her mother died and she was forced to take over all the positions that her mother took in the household and continued to bring drugs over at the same time. At 19, she was on the state side and she had just 
completed a drop off for her dad and she was stopped by what she thought was immigration. It was a homicide detective. And he was asking her, did you do this? Did you do this? Her English was very sketchy, but she understood what he was saying. And she thought that he was talking about her drop. She's on the wrong side of the river. She just dropped off drugs. Yes, I did it. And what he was talking about was a double homicide that had just happened. And that was taken as a confession. And she was put into prison, and she's been there now for 24 years. Oh, man. She, you know, put into a prison in America, not speaking any English at 19 years old. You know, and, you know, but there's story after story after story of things like that. You know, and those are the the people with the quote unquote violent offenses. You know, but really that it was just a very sad story. Yeah. You know, and now she doesn't even know if her family's alive. She does. She hasn't heard from them. She doesn't know if they know if they think she's dead. Yeah. She never ever had any contact. You know, she's she'll get out within the next few years and she'll be deported. Um, but she doesn't know where to go or, like, have any clue. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, luckily, I, I have some friends in Mexico that are Christians that are going to pick her up at the bus station and take care of her from, yeah. from that point. But, I mean, there's just so many stories like that. Um, how did your kids handle your absence? God took care of my family. Um, he surrounded us with a church family that went above and beyond. I mean, it, they did what any church family should do, but more than most would. And this is your church family back in Corpus Christi? Back in Corpus Christi, yeah. Um, They they homeschooled my kids. My kids were homeschooled when I was home, but they continued to homeschool my kids the whole time I was gone so that they wouldn't have to be in the public school system and deal with things that they would hear, you know, said about me or anything like that. Different women from the church would sign up for a year or a semester or different things, and they would homeschool my kids. They took care of them. you know, until my husband got off of work every day, they helped them get into, you know, Taekwondo classes and things like that. They helped provide the gas money for my husband to come up and see me and to bring the kids to see me. They totally loved on my family. Yeah. My, um, my daughters, uh, I'm half Mexican. And so we had a quinceanera. I don't know if you know what that is, but yeah. it's like a big family, uh, Thing for a 15th birthday but in that they they're supposed to take mother-daughter pictures and my daughters both took pictures with me but they also took pictures with their other mothers and they had like six or seven oh, wow. you know moms that you know poured into them and loved them took care of them during the time when I was gone and still you know they still have those relationships with those women and it's really neat because in the beginning of all this you know um there's a scripture that says that God gently leads those with young. And at the very beginning, um, when I was waiting to go to trial, CPS was involved and they, they wanted us to be supervised with our kids. And so the judge had ordered that we could be with our kids as long as we had somebody with us. And four families from the church stood up and said that they would be with us to be with our kids. So we had this weird schedule going on where um, so that we, we could be with them every, every moment that they were awake. We we were with them and but we would be at one house one day one house the next day and you know so that everybody would be able to um, keep their own lives as much as possible but still supervise us with the kids and um 
I remember thinking that was so difficult, you know, going from house to house and and um, having to drag five kids along to a different house every day. And at one point we had the flu and we oh, were going yeah. from house, you know, it was, it was crazy. But I remember reading that scripture and thinking, God, this is not gentle. What are you doing? You know, you, you know are you lying to me? Because it says right here that you gently lead those with young. And I've got all these babies and they're having to go from house to house. But when I look back now, I see how he was gently leading us. He was preparing us for the time when I would leave because all of those moms continued to be moms to my kids. Yeah. You know, they got to get used to life at their house with me there. They got to get, you know, see how things were done. I got to see how they lived their life in their house, you know, for days on end so that I would see how, you know, how they were going to take care of my kids. You know, um, God you know, just worked that out so that there would already be some like it would be gently handled the process of them having to be raised by a village, (laughs) you know, and they really were, they were really raised by a village, but God, you know, put all that in place ahead of time to prepare us for that. Yeah. Yeah. What, what was the hardest moment for you being in prison? I have no idea. (laughs) There were so many hard moments. I mean, the hardest thing was definitely being away from the kids. Yeah. You know, as a mom, that's just, you know, every birthday I cried my eyes out, you know, every, every time something happened that I missed, you know, I'm having as Gabrielle is growing up and I, you know, now she's seven months old. And that's where how old uh, Emma was when I left, you know. And as she's starting to do all these things that I missed with Emma, I, I, I crying all over again, you know, because I missed those yeah. things with her, and you know, I, I missed a lot. Yeah, that, that's that's definitely the hardest. But I don't know a specific moment because there were just so many. Yeah, hard yeah. Wow. Let's talk about the release. Um, Tell us the events that led to your eventual release. What what happened while you were in prison? So, I um, the my attorney was able to go back and look at the evidence in my case. The second chair prosecutor was moved to a position of DA for a time um, because the DA had to leave the office and there was an interim period. She was appointed by the governor. And when she was appointed into that position, she allowed my attorney to come back in and look at the evidence again. In that, she was able to find the evidence that had been hidden and brought it to her. And she was like, oh, my goodness, (laughs) You know, and she she did not know the second chair prosecutor did not know that that had been hidden. She knew that we had asked for it. She had been told by the first chair prosecutor that it was not there. Um, But she also did know that there were things that were done inappropriately in my trial. And she at that point was willing to testify to those things. So we had an evidentiary hearing. We showed that evidence that had been hidden. She testified at that hearing and testified to other things that had been done inappropriately. Um, The um, top nephrologist in the world came to that hearing and testified that he hadn't been able to testify and what he would have said. And... um, there was it what we thought was going to be a hearing that lasted a couple of days lasted over a week and um then we presented that hearing 
to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, and they overturned the case and granted me a new trial. And um, how many years did this all take to happen? <laughs> well, I was in prison for seven years and seven months. Um, it, t- it, it was three years after the evidentiary hearing when I was finally granted the new trial. It's, it's a slow process. It actually was fast for me. On average, it takes at least 15 years to prove your innocence if wow. you are falsely convicted. Um, so it was actually fast for me. Um, didn't feel it though. <laughs> Seven years is a long time to be away from your children. Yeah. Um, so when I was granted, when my case was overturned, I found out I was in the maximum security prison I, and I got an email and then I called home and um, I was told that it had been overturned and it took 40 days from then for me to be moved back to the county jail. So for 40 days I, I was in the maximum security prison and just waiting for my release. And it was interesting now looking back on it because every day of those 40 days I, I was excited to go home to my family, but I also, I cried every day because of the ladies I was leaving behind and the love that God had given me for them. Yeah. And they were grieving as if I was dying because they, everyone that leaves usually forgets them and they thought they'd never, ever see me again. Yeah. And they were excited for me that I was going home, but they were also grieving the loss of me leaving. Yeah. And, um, you know, I had promised them that I was going to keep up, but there were so many, they'd had so many broken promises that they did not believe that I would ever see them again. Yeah. Um, so I was moved from the count uh, from the maximum security prison back to the county jail. And I spent seven weeks there waiting, uh, awaiting a bond hearing. And so then I finally was able to make bond. And then the uh, case was dropped by the district attorney. He, um, he dropped the case, but he didn't officially um, declare me actually innocent. So we had to wait until the next district attorney came into office for him to declare me actually innocent. And that's when the case was finalized. And that's when you were exonerated. Yes. Wow. 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 Describe the emotions that you felt when the, the most recent district attorney finally exonerated you. What went through your mind? Well, I mean, it's a relief that you can't really explain. Um, it was a very emotional day. I More emotional than I really thought it would be. I yeah. had to go back to the courtroom where I was convicted. And uh, another exoneree came with me, uh, Michael Morton. I don't know if you ever heard yeah. of him. But he, Michael Morton was exonerated of killing his wife. He's also a fellow believer. And he came along with me because he knew how this how hard this process can be. So we go into the court or to the courthouse and we have to go through the metal detectors and go up the same elevator. The last time I went up that elevator, I didn't leave out that elevator because I was convicted and I was taken to the jail. And so as I'm going up the elevator, he's telling me it's there's, he says, there's one thing I know we're both going to be going home today free, <laughs> you know, and you know, it, but it's scary. It, the whole process was scary, you know, and then they said the, you know, the state of Texas versus Hannah Ruth Overton. And, and, uh, you know, the last time I heard those words, it was not a good thing, you know, but then the, the judge actually teared up when she was, you know, signing my paperwork and she, told me, you know, congratulations, and I was finally free and actually proved innocent and not, you know, with no more fear. 
of being retried or anything like that. Yeah. You know, and that, that was definitely something in the process as I was waiting that I was very scared of. I didn't believe that I would ever be convicted again. I knew that the evidence was out that proved my innocence, but I thought they might, I might have to go back to trial. And I was really scared of that process and how I would handle it. So to have that completely over and behind me and be completely actually, you know, declared actually innocent was an amazing feeling. Praise God. Yes. Praise God. Tell us about the very moment you were released from prison. Like, and I don't know even what that looks like. Is it, do you, what happens? Like you have manacles and the tick, what did that look like? Okay. So they called my name and told me that they were going to, that I was going to be released and, um, came to my cell. I was back in it. Um, in the county, I was in solitary confinement again because of the media. So they came to my cell and opened the door. And I had a friend that um, had been in the maximum security prison with me that was there. And so I asked if I could give her my stuff. And I gave her like my shampoo and stuff like that. The officer allowed me to do that. And then I was taken out to meet my attorneys and was able to meet them. And we went out this back way because there was a lot of media went and met my attorneys and my husband was in the car. And then we went to one of my attorney's offices where my kids were waiting for me and my mom and my brother and a whole news crew and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And there was a gag order. So it was really weird because we were, we had all these news crews, but they couldn't talk to us. <laughs> and so they had, um, there was a, the people that were doing the documentary were not officially part of the press. So they were able to take video, but they couldn't, they couldn't ask us any questions. So yeah. it was it. So there's uh, video of that there moment. There is video of, of that moment in the, in, in the documentary. There's video of all that. Wow. So, um, that was really neat. You know, of course, getting to hug my kids for the first time in seven years. For the and, first time. Yes. Including your daughter who had been seven months old when you had left her. Yes. Yes. Well, at one point, they, um, I, I, I had an officer while I was there in the prison that made a mistake and allowed me to have a contact visit for, you know, on Mother's Day. And so I had one contact visit with her when she was, I don't know, maybe 18 months old, something like that. Wow. But other than that, yes. Wow. Wow. And, and what, what were the emotions like? Was it overwhelming for you? Completely overwhelming. It felt like a dream. And my kids say the same thing. Like they, they kept thinking they were going to wake up, you know, um, you know, it's, it's all like a blur and definitely feels like a, like it was a dream. And it was, you know, for the first couple of weeks, it was just all, you know, none of us really slept. We just were just, it was just crazy. Yeah. Just like a dream. And it was right at Christmas time. So we had Christmas and my brother proposed to his fiance during that time, you know, so it, it was all really yeah. a neat, you know, but feels felt like a dream. Definitely. Wow. Like a heaven on earth experience kind of yeah. thing, like that type of joy. <laughs> yes. And what year was that? That was in 2014. 2014. So De just December of 2014. Wow. So just yeah. four years ago. Yes. Wow. Wow. So just five years ago, you had been in white in a, in a cell yes. still. Even now, wow, wow. Isn't the mercy of God just like so kind of like beautiful that way? Yes, definitely. Wow. So then tell us about, you said that um, when you were leaving the maximum security prison, a lot of the ladies were warning because they thought, oh man, we're never going to hear from you again. And you know, you'd been a blessing to them in prison, 
So what, what kind of transpired between leaving prison finally and now? Because I know that you still have an active ministry to women in prison. What does that look like? So while I was in prison, I felt like God was laying on my heart that this was supposed to continue after I left. I didn't know really how that would look and what God was doing because I didn't know when I'd be leaving, you know. Um, but I felt like God had, you know, told me that it was supposed to continue after I left. And I even, like, I had... Um, in the process of waiting for a decision from the court, I was so anxious that a friend of mine had helped me like try, starting to draw house plans for my dream home if I ever got out, you know, and so I was built, you know, do, in doing these house plans, I had done plans for a home for women that came out, mm. you know, and my, my thought was that as the, you know, it, knowing that my kids were growing up, that probably they would all, they would be able to live there and then grow up and move out and it would be there for the for the ladies as they came out. And, and so anyway, as I came out of prison, I, the ladies that I was doing this Bible study with, I continued to write to them and we continued to send Bible studies in with the church. And at that point it was like about a hundred people. Um, my friend, uh, had started sending in cards for holidays to the ladies that I was doing Bible study with. It started with like six ladies and I watched her, um, when she sent these cards, these ladies cried and they were so touched to hear, to get a card from somebody they didn't even know. They would keep the card on their table till April as proof that somebody cared enough to send them a Christmas card. Yeah. You know, and they didn't even get cards, some of them from their mom at Christmas time. And, um, so as I saw how much that meant to them, I, I told her and she continued to, you know, she made a commitment to do that for every holiday. So mm -hmm. she started doing that, you know, um, for all the ladies doing Bible city. And it, as it continued to grow, she continued to do it. She got other ladies from the church to help her sign all the cards and so, stuff so they, she could send out, you know, a hundred of them for every holiday. And, um, that has continued. And when I came home, I had on my heart to, um, add a pin pal ministry to that. So, um, our goal is to, for every lady that's doing the Bible study to get them a pin pal, a Christian mentor that will write to them at least once a month and just encourage them. And sometimes that's just a scripture verse. You know, there were times when I got a card with a verse on it that said nothing else. And I let, I gave that card to somebody and that verse was what, um, them from committing suicide that wow. day. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, just explaining how important that is to people and, in, and encouraging people to sign up to be a pen pal to somebody that's in prison. And you may not get a letter back um, because they might not have the money to buy stamps, but just to know that they get mail once a month is life-changing for yeah. some of them. Um, so we added a pen pal ministry to that. The Bible study ministry has continued to grow. And um, what was 100 women when I left is now over 700 women that are doing the Bible study. Um, we started a nonprofit organization called Sendeo Ministries. Sendeo is a Greek word. It means bound with them. In Hebrews 13, 3, it says, remember those in prison as if you were bound with them those suffering as if you were suffering also. The reason I picked that name is because I was, I was bound with them and I could never forget. But even more than that, the scripture wasn't just written to people that have been there. It was written to all believers. And we all are you know, told to remember those in prison as if we were there. Yeah. And so, you know, a big part of the ministry is encouraging others to realize that we have a whole people group in America that is often forgotten. 
and unreached. Yeah. And, um, and so we, with Sendeo Ministries, we now send in the Bible studies regularly. We publish the Bible studies. And the, the one that we're sending in right now is one that my kids actually wrote. Um, it's a devotional on the fruit of the Spirit. And so my kids spent last year, we, we homeschool. So one of, our, um, one of our courses was a creative writing course. And that's what we did is we wrote a book and published it. So it's, it's a, called the fruit of the Spirit. And it'll be available on Amazon and through our website next month. That's awesome. So um, but the ladies will also be doing that study as part of a series. And so they do a series of Bible studies. And whenever they complete the study, they get a certificate for themselves to keep because many of them ha- don't have anything like that. Maybe haven't yeah. ever completed anything, some of them. And also one for parole to show that they're doing something to better themselves. Sure. And um, so... They, um, we do the Bible studies, we do the pen pal ministry, the holiday cards. We also are in the process of building a transitional home that'll house 25 ladies and we'll do a year long discipleship school. So that school will have, you know, if they commit to come to the school, they'll have parenting courses, anger management, Bible study courses, um, entrepreneurship courses, hospitality, you know, all different things to help them prepare for um, life after prison. One of the things that I realized coming out, I had all the support in the world. You know, I had a church family that loved me. I had a family that loved me and I still was completely overwhelmed. Um, in seven years, what had been a flip phone that you just opened and turned, you know, made a phone call on, then became a computer in your hand. The, you know, yeah. iPhone is completely different, you know, smartphones. And, and I was just completely overwhelmed. Um, I even trying to go to the bathroom, I couldn't figure out how to flush the toilet, trying, you know, everything had changed. Technology yeah. changes so fast. And some of these ladies have been in there for 20 years, yeah. you know, and when they didn't, didn't know how to use a microwave. And so uh, everything's really overwhelming. And then, as I said earlier, everything's metal and concrete. So just all the sounds, all the smells, all the different textures, everything can be very overwhelming. And a lot of women, when they come out, they experience panic attacks and um, PTSD and just a lot of different things because of their time there. And so... um, a part of the reason we have we'll have Sendeo Discipleship School is to help these women with that process and yeah. help them to you know to be able to really strive in society and um, reunite with their kids if they want to and different things like that. Yeah, and how many women do you think Sendeo reached in 2018? Oh wow! So we do a um, we do two outreaches yearly into the prisons, uh, along with the Bible studies and all that. That are um, at Christmas we do a hygiene uh, like a hygiene outreach. Basically, we give out hygienes to the ladies that you know. I told you that they don't get shampoo and things like that if they don't have money. So we do that for the whole unit. Mm. And um, this year we did twelve units, so we gave six thousand ladies wow. hygiene products. And um, we at, in the summer we did water bottles and cooling towels. Um, we've already been asked this next summer to add two more units to that, so it'll be almost eight thousand women that will be doing. Um, our summer outreach. Wow. Um, 
and um, every with with those things that we give in that we give as gifts, we're also um, giving a bookmark that is inviting them to be a part of the Bible study if they're interested, to be wow. a part of the Pin Pal Ministry, to get our newsletter, which we send in quarterly, so that they can know what's going on with, with different ways that they can be. Um, involved in Sundeo Ministries and um, what the progress with the discipleship school and when we get to that point of being able to open that. We have, um, we need about $60,000 more to be able to continue to finish building the home for the ladies and then it'll be ready to open. Our curriculum's all ready and everything, but we are building as God provides. We feel like God's led us not to take out a big load and build it, but to just build it as he provides. So we're just waiting on donations to come in. And as they come in, we have uh, skilled laborers that have committed to come and build. So whenever we get, you know, that $3,000 say, then we can do the next project. And then yeah. the group comes and they like this next week on the first and second, we have a group coming to put the siding on the, on the house. And so we just continue to do that as the Lord provides. Oh, that's great. That's great. And for those that want to learn how they, for our listeners that are listening, how can they get involved? Where, where do they go to learn more about Sendeo Ministries so and about you? We have a, um, a website. It's www.sendeoministries.com. Sendeo is S-Y-N-D-E-O. We also are on Facebook and Instagram. If you want to look there, we, we do pretty good at keeping up with things on Facebook and Instagram. You can email me through um, Sendeo Ministries at gmail.com or my operations manager. Um, you can also make donations at either, either one of those places. Um, that we are completely sponsored by donations. We do everything that we do just by the donations of other people. And we, um, so we definitely would, you know, it would definitely be a blessing if anybody gave a donation of any sort. Um, If you wanted to give through PayPal, it's sindeoministries at gmail.com. Great, great, awesome. What was like, did you struggle with forgiveness? You know, like looking at the the prosecutor that you, you know, who knows what was going on there, right? But like, was this a, a struggle for you either with the prosecutor or whoever it might be? Well, definitely. I mean, it's, it's definitely been the process. Uh, there was a place in my, in, in my time that I was in prison when um, there was somebody that was, had decided that she was mad at me and she was planning to kill me. And um, the pro- the reason she was upset was because I was doing Bible study with her girlfriend and she thought I was going to tell her girlfriend that she needed to break up with her because she was in a homosexual relationship and she wanted to fix that by killing me. <laughs> so she had this plan. And in the process that I found out about the plan and that and some of my friends surrounded me and protected me and told her that she would you know she wouldn't get away with it basically and um in the end she was uh found with a uh, with a weapon and she was taken to to sag but in the process of all that happening I was looking around at all the women in the dorm and everybody was so excited by all this drama, you know, like, it, it, I mean, I, I was, my life was in danger and they were excited about all the drama of the situation. And even my friends that were trying to protect me, they were still like hyped up by the drama. And I, in looking around, I, I, I asked God, I was like, I don't want to be like these people. How do I not end up like this? And um, 
So later that night after she'd been removed and taken to SEG because they found her with a weapon. And what is what is SEG? Uh, uh, segregation. She was put uh, into solitary confinement. Got it. For It was like a, for three days, but she was put into solitary confinement. Um, so after she was removed, I, w- I was, you know, quietly laying in my bed and asking God, you know, how do I not be like these people? And, and I felt like God told me that I needed to forgive and that, you know, it was bitterness that led to these people being like that, you know, and that and it and year after year of bitterness that that's what, you know, escalated to that that place. And um, I felt like he had laid on my heart to write a letter of forgiveness to somebody. And um I was like, oh, I don't want to do it, <laughs> you know, because I didn't want to. Yeah. I didn't want to forgive. And so I, I kept feeling like God was laying this on my heart. You need to write this letter of forgiveness. You need to write this letter of forgiveness. And I, um, so I wrote this letter. And in the letter, I, I told the lady, it was somebody that was involved in my prosecution. It was not the first chair prosecutor, but it was somebody that was involved in my prosecution. I told her that, um, that I was choosing to forgive her but what I was doing was I was putting her case in a higher court. I said, just like my case is in a higher court and you don't have anything to do with it anymore, um, you know, I'm putting your case in a higher court. So the higher court, God, will decide what to do with you and I'm out of it at this point. And that's basically what I said. Now, little did I know the justice system doesn't work that way. She still had a part to play in my case and you know, it wasn't completely out of her hands because it was in a higher court. But in my naivety, that made sense to me. But I told her that and then I told her, I said, so now that I have placed your case in a higher court, I have given your case to God, it is up to him what happens to me now? I mean, what happens to you now? And he knows your heart and he knows why you did what you did and he can decide what happens from here, but I'm gonna stay out of it. And um, at, at that, at the same, and along those same lines, I want you to know that just like Joseph said in Genesis, you know, you did to his brothers, you meant evil from this. God meant something good. Yeah. And I, I quoted that scripture to her and I told her some good things that God was doing out of it. I told her stories of people's lives that had been changed. And I told her, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know that God has good plans for this. And so I forgive you. And I wrote the letter and I put it in, in the envelope and I stuck it in the back of my box, the box that you keep everything in because I didn't really want to send it. And God kept tugging at my heart. I, I told you to send this letter. I'm like, no, that's all right. I don't want to send yeah. the letter. <laughs> I, I wrote it. I, I obeyed. That's yeah. good enough. <laughs> and he, after a while, you know, I felt like he kept bugging me about it. So I get it back out and I go to get ready to send it. I end up tearing it up because uh, I really didn't want to send yeah. this letter. And so yeah. then I wrote it again. And during the time when I was doing this, all, uh, all of this fighting with God about writing the letter, things were changing in the office where she was, and she ended up getting a promotion. And so I thought, well, there's no way that she'll get this letter from me now because they're not going to give her a letter from a convicted uh, you know, felon. At the time, I, you know, I was convicted, and they weren't going to give her a letter, and so I thought I was safe to send it, and so I sent it, yeah. <laughs> thinking it would never get to her. 
And it did. It did get to her desk. And then she showed up at my pastor's office in tears because God used it to change her life. And she's now a Christian. She's leading Bible studies in the courthouse. And, uh, you know, God used that not only to change her life, but to change my life. Because from that point, I saw what forgiveness could do. And I saw, you know, that he he had a purpose for asking me to do that. And I was able to... Like that started the process of me being able to let go and forgive the other people that played a part in putting me in this situation. Yeah. H- have you met with her in person since being I have. released? I have. I've seen her a few times and yeah. um, I've visited with her and then invited her to the baby shower. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, I think that, you know, for those that are listening, I mean, no one in our, in our audience probably has ever been to prison and hopefully none of them will be. Um, but I think, you know, for forgiveness, that's something that's going to be really important that everyone d- struggles with that. Yeah. Um, another thing that I think a lot of people deal with is when God changes our plans. Can you speak to that? <laughs> well, God definitely changed my plans. You know, I had like five little ones at home. We brought Andrew into our home, which would make six little ones. You know, I had this plan of growing, you know, raising these kids and homeschooling and working in youth ministry. And that's what I thought I was going to do. In fact, about a year prior to that, my pastor's wife had asked me to lead a women's Bible study that healed and set free that I spoke about earlier. And I told her, I said, I'm scared of women. I don't want to, you know, kids are one thing. I don't want to do minister to women. I don't want, you know, (laughs) and she's like, no, no, I feel like God's leading you to do this and I'm like no nah, that's all right and I, I, you know but God definitely had a plan there and he used that to help me in that process to get over that fear and also to prepare me for what he had called me to and um you know our plans have definitely you know the word says that man makes their plans but God chooses our steps you know and and God had a different plan than I did but it has been good and it has been hard there's been definitely some hard things in that plan but he's he's worked good out of it every step of the way yeah yeah you know and protected us in ways that we we had no clue and cared for us and he's continuing to change lives and the reality is that if one life is changed for eternity because of what happened, that it's worth it. But hundreds and maybe thousands of lives have been changed already, and God's continuing to do things. Yeah. You know, so it is so worth whatever, you know, we've gone through yeah. for what his plan is. For his glory. Yeah. Yeah. Was there ever a point when um, you regretted trying to foster Andrew? Like, there wasn't. There wasn't. Um, I, our time with him was so sweet. I would never give that up. Now there, I can't say that there's not times when I'm like, you know, why didn't I do things differently? Why didn't I, you know, as, as soon as he threw up, I should have rushed him to the hospital or you know things like that. But that's not realistic. Mm. You know, I, I, you know, when I, being a mom of, you know six kids with him in the home that you know you don't run to the hospital when the one of your kids throws up that's not realistic for that to happen and um you you know there's nothing that i could have changed i I spent many many years trying to figure out how i could have done things differently but there's really nothing i could have done differently god had a plan and he had a purpose for that plan and he's used it for his glory and he's going to continue to yeah what would the Hannah Overton right now today say to the Hannah Overton 
seven years ago or 10 years ago that was just about to enter prison? What, what, would, what would that conversation look like? <laughs> I don't even know what I would say. Um, just to, you know, trust God on the ride. You know, it's, it's definitely was a roller coaster. But, it, you know, God carried us every step. And just to hold on tight and trust him. Because yeah. he, has, he has his hands on every detail. Yeah. Yeah. Um, two last questions. Now versus then. So um, your perspective of God today, has that changed at all um, compared to your perspective of God and his plan before you went to prison? So before I went to prison, like I said, I had been raised in a Christian home. I knew God. I would have told you I was in love with Jesus, but I hadn't experienced some of those attributes of Christ that I have now. Yeah. You know, I had sang songs about him being my strong tower, my shelter in the storm, my savior, but I hadn't experienced really being in a place where I had to trust him to be those things. You know, I had lived a pretty sheltered life. I hadn't had to experience those things. And so my experiential relationship with him is so much more intimate now. Yeah. You know, I've experienced him being every one of those things that the word says that he is. Well, maybe not everyone. I, I'm, I'm not perfect. I, you know, God obviously can do more in my life, but I've experienced those, you know, those promises that he makes. I've, I've seen that they're true. Yeah. You know, instead of just reading about them or singing about them or, you know, I've been able to experience that he is faithful no matter what. Yeah. And even when he does, when it doesn't feel like it, that he is, he, he is taking care of us and he is, you know, he, he does love us. Yeah. Even when we might not feel that love or whatever, whatever it is that, you know, just my experience has been that he is faithful. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, praise God. Last question for you. I know that uh, before we began recording, we were talking about your daughter, Gabriella, and she has a very special role that she plays. Can you just kind of tell us what makes Gabriella so special? Yes. Yeah, so obviously I was taken away from my kids when they were very young, uh, Emma being seven months old and still nursing at the time. And um, I never thought that I'd be able to um, have another kid. And obviously I can't replace the years that I missed with them. Yeah. But um, I did always want to have another baby. And when I first got out, I had two miscarriages and I was told by doctors I would not be able to, that my body had been too messed up by too much stress and that I would not be able to carry another baby to term and that it wasn't possible. But God had different plans and he gave us this miracle. And she's been very healing for all of us. And um, it's really neat to be able to be a part of things that um, I may have missed with the other kids and just to watch them love her. And she's spoiled, <laughs> but she's definitely a very healing thing for us. And as I said earlier, her name means God gave me strength and God answered our prayers. Yeah. Yeah. And her, her, her full name is? Gabriella Elena Overton. Gabriella Elena Overton. So Elena is spelled a little bit different. It's Hebrew and it's A-L-I-A-N-A -A, and it means God answered our prayers. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Hannah, for just coming and sharing with us your story. Um, I just really appreciate your testimony. Also, I, you know, for those that are listening, they can't see your contagious joy, but I think they can hear it. 
And as you've just been speaking and sharing with us for the last you know couple hours here, I mean, you have just had a smile and this demeanor, you know, that I know for myself, I think if I'd been through what you've been through, oh, I mean, I, I know for a fact, I would just, you know, be full of like remorse and bitterness and, you know, all these things. And it's by the grace of God. It's not amen. me. Um, you know, on my own, I think I would be in a psych ward. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't, it's definitely God that has carried us. Yeah. Amen. Well, thank you. Our guest today is Hannah Overton. You can find more at sendeoministries.com. So the the lady that was trying to kill me because of her girlfriend getting it, it, doing the Bible study, about six months later, she was brought back into the dorm. And I was really scared when I saw that she was coming into the dorm. And not only was she coming into the dorm, she was going to be put in the bed directly across from me. Oh, great. And I, I was really scared. So I'm like sitting on my floor in, in my little cubicle area where my bed is, and I'm crying. And I'm like, oh, what are we going to do? And my friends are all around there like, it's okay okay, we'll take care of it. We'll get her out of the dorm. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll take care of you. And, um, she comes in and she puts her stuff down and she came to the edge of the cubicle and she, she said, can I talk to you? And I was like, uh, sure. (laughs) And she said, no, come here, come here. Can I talk to you? And and I was really scared to go over there, but I did. And I, I went to over by where she was. And she said, um, she said, well, I was gone. I started reading my Bible and I became a Christian. Would you be willing to do Bible study with me? And I didn't know what to do, whether to believe her. I I said, okay, I'll, I'll do the Bible study with me, with you, as long as we can do it, like in the middle of the day room, right in front of the cameras, you know, and I started, I started doing the Bible study with her and she continued to grow in the Lord. And she's now at a completely different unit. She has a life sentence and she's, um, you know, will spend the rest of her life in prison, but she's at another unit and leading Bible studies. Wow. And I, I get letters from people that she's led to the Lord oh, now in this process. So God had an amazing plan in her life as well. Praise God. Hannah's story about trusting the Lord even in the worst imaginable circumstances is powerful and convicting. And what Hannah mentioned about Joseph's response to his brothers really stuck out. What you meant for evil, God used for good. To learn more about Hannah and her ministry or to volunteer, visit her website, sindeoministries.com. That's S-Y-N-D-E-O ministries.com. You can also visit our website, compelledpodcast.com, and we'll include a link back to the original show notes that include in-depth articles with more details about Hannah's journey, a documentary, and photos. Again, you can find all of that at compelledpodcast.com, and of course, we'll include a link back to Hannah's website as well. And again, just a reminder that this was a special behind-the-scenes interview, and you can get access to all of our behind-the-scenes interviews as well as our regular episodes one week early when you become a monthly member on Patreon for as little as $3 a month. You can get started by visiting compelledpodcast.com and clicking the button that says support our work. Stay tuned for a sneak peek from next week's episode with Evelyn Husband Thompson. Her husband, Rick, was the commander of the Space Shuttle Columbia in 2003. Minutes before touchdown, the Columbia exploded in Earth's atmosphere, killing all crew members and leaving Evelyn and her children reeling and looking to God for answers. I'm your host, Paul Hastings, and you've been listening to Compelled. We'll be back with another compelling story next Tuesday.
So we're standing there and I'm holding Lauren Matthews' hands at this point and we watch the clock count down to zero and there's been no sonic boom and there's no landing. And I just don't, I don't know what to think. Laura and Matthew were not very talkative, but both of them said, is daddy okay? And I said, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what's happening. Three times a week, I get my news from the pour over today, which in nine minutes or less, gives me the entire day's news and saves me from endless doom scrolling. They hit the highlights and then offer a Christian perspective and a relevant piece of scripture, which helps me remember to keep a Christ-focused outlook on whatever I hear in the news. And we already know that 2024 is going to be crazy with a presidential election in America and ongoing wars in Ukraine and Israel and who knows what's even going on with the global economy. In the midst of a tough, divisive year, I'm grateful to have the pour over keeping me informed of current events, but also rooted in Christ. I've been faithfully consuming the pour over three times every week for the last four years, and I think you'll find it helpful too. And the best part, it's free, doesn't cost a penny. Start listening by searching on your podcast app for the pour over today or subscribe to their email newsletter, which has the exact same content at thepourover.org. Again, that's thepourover.org.